Okay, we're in a uh, 13-week class on how to study the Bible. We started two weeks ago with how we got our Bible, looked at that the last two weeks. And this week we want to move our attention to how to interpret the Bible. Um, and uh, in the last two weeks what we looked at was, was how God composed the Scriptures. So how they came from the mind of God... Uh, and then he inspired men to write them down into what we now have as the Word. And we talked about how that Word has been translated and copied uh, thousands and thousands of times over the ages. And now we have this uh, Word in our language. So, we can be confident that, that the Bible that we have is the true Word of God. And... and um, so, because we have God's perfect Word for us, the question that we want to answer today is, how can we understand it? Okay, certainly you've looked into the Bible at times and, and thought, what, what was that? Okay, I, I don't get that. And so, our, our understanding uh, needs to be sharpened. We need to understand how it is that God speaks to us. And... Um, our understanding of what God intended to take place through this process is called interpretation. Now, what uh, we don't often think about is that we interpret everything that we look at and everything that we read. There's automatic interpretation going on. We think about what's said or we look at what, what we've seen and we make a judgment call based on that. That's interpretation. The same thing happens, obviously, with the Scriptures. And so, the first question I want to... Uh, uh, well, let me give you a definition for interpretation. And that is, the process by which we understand the, the author's intended meaning. Okay, the process by which we understand the author's intended meaning. Interpretation is the process by which we understand the author's intended meaning. Now, why is it so important? Why, why, is, why is interpretation so important? We need to answer that question in order to, to move on here. So, uh, first of all, it's so important because people hate to be misinterpreted. Okay, I mean, you, you've experienced this, I'm sure. Has ever, anyone ever taken your words and they took your words, even though your words didn't mean that, you didn't mean that when you said that, they took them out of context and used them against you. Uh, suppose you wrote a letter to your sweetheart that read something like this. I'm just sitting here drinking a cup of coffee thinking about you and I would kill for a Hershey bar to go along with it. And it goes on and on, talks about all sorts of lovey-dovey stuff. But two years later, you get a knock on your door. It's the cops. They're investigating you for the murder of a bar owner. You go down to the station, they interrogate you, and you ask, okay, wait a second, why are you questioning me? Why would I have anything to do with that? And they pull up this letter that you have, and they say, based on this letter that you wrote on August 1st, 2008, we believe that you have motive and you had an opportunity to do this, mur this murder. And you say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Read me this letter. And it says, and, and here's the part they read. I'm just sitting here drinking. See, they think you're an alcoholic. 
And then I would kill for a Hershey bar. So I would murder in order to get a bar. And, and, and you say, wait a second, that's not what I meant. Read the whole sentence. Read everything that I said. I'm not an alcoholic. It said that I was drinking coffee. And nor would I ever kill someone. That's just an expression of figure of speech that I used in order to make a point. That I love chocolate. That's all it is. And, uh, I mean, how do you feel when someone misinterprets you like that? You feel violated, obviously confused, manipulated, cheated, angry. Why do we think God feels any differently when we misinterpret His Word? I mean, God has given us a single meaning in the Scriptures of what He means for each thing that's said in there. We can't just take it and go, okay, it means this. Because it really feels like it means this to me. Okay, that's why, uh, you know, in our society, we, we have this, this phrase that's used so often, well, that's your opinion. And so when people speak on the authority of the Scriptures, they say, well, that's, that's what it might mean for you, but here's what it means for me. And what we need to understand is there's only one meaning for Scripture. There's only one meaning. And that's what we need to work on. We need to work on figuring out, and that's the process of interpretation. It's figuring out that one meaning of whatever passage we're looking at, or the Bible as a whole. And that's why I made a point in the in understanding God's will class to say that that we should not, when we're searching for what God wants us to do, we should never go to the Scriptures and just pull out one verse and try to make that apply to our situation. Whenever we pull out a verse like that, we always have to understand it in its context. Okay, we'll talk about what that means as we go on today. Um, now, I talked about how interpretation works just in the normal context of our lives, but but the reason that we don't think about interpretation too much is because most of our interpretation happens instantaneously. It, it just happens. We don't even think about it. And, and because most of the messages that we receive are contemporary and local, we don't have to think about uh, all the different implications of what someone says. Okay, contemporary, I mean in our age. Okay, so when you say that I went to the Tigers game, or I went to see the Tigers, let's say, you know, if you were in the 1800s, someone might think you're actually think, talking about animals when we're talking about a sports team. And it's local in that we are in this culture. We are in an American culture. So when someone uh, says something about, uh, about going down to, to get some food, we understand that you're going to a grocery store or to a restaurant. Where in another culture, they might think you're going down to a marketplace. See, um, so so most of our interpretation happens instantaneously, and so we don't even think about it. We automatically make it. We understand what the person is saying, and and we make a we make an interpretation based on it. So, just as an example, if I said to you, "Go to the kitchen, check the fridge to see if there's any Pepsi," okay, you wouldn't think, "Hmm, what does go mean? What does the word go mean? Does he mean walk, drive?" Fly, what is he talking about? Kitchen, what exactly is a kitchen? And, and what is Pepsi? Am I looking for an animal or something? I mean, we, we understand what that all means. See, you, you instantaneously know what I'm talking about because we, 
we interpret automatically. However, the, the, the hard part about understanding the Bible is that it was not written in our age. Okay? We said that the Bible was written over a period of how many years? Do you remember? Was it 100 years? 1,600 years. Okay, so the Bible was written over 1,600 years period, possibly 2,000. And the last book was written about 1,900 years ago. So we're talking about a completely different age and it wasn't written in America, was it? It was written over in uh, what is now the Middle East. So we don't understand their culture. We don't understand that time. And so when we read the Scriptures, we have to understand what it means according to, to that culture and that time. We'll talk about that here as we go forward as well. Alright, any questions on interpretation so far? Is that clear? How, how important interpretation is? Alright, good. What's our goal? What's the goal of interpretation or in studying the Bible? And this goes along with the definition of interpretation. Our goal is to understand the author's intended meaning. Our goal is to understand the author's intended meaning. What did he mean when he wrote this down? The reason that... Okay, I said earlier that you have... Oh, that's your opinion about what that verse means or what that passage means. That's your opinion. I don't believe that. The reason we have so many differing views... Okay, if you talk to anybody who's, who's known about the Bible for a long time, you've recognized that there are differing views, right? I mean, you talk about the, the area of tongues... Speaking in tongues. Is that still happening today? And that sort of thing. You're going to get good people that disagree on, the, on that same issue. Now, why are there different interpretations of the same passage or the same verse? The reason, I think, is because there are so many... Uh, people are playing by different rules. Okay, so if I took a lineup of people up here and we took your sweetheart note that we were talking about earlier and we let each one of them read it. Okay, They would all potentially have a, a different idea of what your sweetheart note meant. Okay, What those specific words meant. But who really knows what the meaning of that verse is? Or the meaning of that, that note is? The person who wrote it. Right? So, so who, would we, who would be the best source or the best place to go in order to find out the, the meaning, the author's intended meaning of that note? It would be the person who wrote it. So, someone can say, well, that's your opinion, but, but we know that God knows what is best. And so, God wrote down His Word. He does not have multiple meanings for one uh, reference or, or one truth. No, He had one meaning. And so, our job is to determine what that meaning is. All right. So, what we're going to do over the next several weeks, uh, actually, next week, I will be gone. Ken Whitworth will be in here teaching. But when I come back, we'll, we'll be doing this week and, and, and those following weeks, we're going to be looking at those rules. What are the rules for interpretation? Because what we want to do is, is be able to, when we read the Bible, read it how we're supposed to read it. Okay? And, and the way that... Did I put the comment? Yeah. On the, the bottom of your third page, which is you know your inside page here, it says, we should read the Bible more like a novel or a newspaper rather than an encyclopedia. Okay, we tend to take little things out of context. Like, I'll give you an example just real quick. Romans 8.28, it 
we say that all things work together for good. And that's true as long as you complete the rest of the verse. All things work together for good for whom? Those who love God and those who are called together for His purpose. Believers. All things don't work together for... I can tell you that unbelievers, those that's not going to be good for them on Judgment Day. So we can't just take that verse, that little... That's what we do. We use it like an encyclopedia often. And we take these little portions of little verses and we say, this is what it means. And God's saying, no, that's not what I said. You've got to read the whole thing. Read it more like a newspaper, okay? Could you imagine someone taking the newspaper and just taking out little bits and pieces? I mean, you have, you have news people that, that do that. They take out little sound bites of people's, uh, um, of their interviews and so on, and they use those against them. And they say, wait a second, okay? Understand what I was saying in the whole conversation. Show them the whole conversation. Don't just show the one sound bite to make me look evil or something. And... And so we should read more like that. Read like we're reading a novel or or a a newspaper, like we're trying to understand the argument that's being laid out there by the author. That's how we should read the Scriptures. Not pick and choose, pull things out. Okay. I think that will become more clear as we as we look here at the rest of these issues today. All right, there are three things we need to understand in order to interpret properly. Three things. Um, and these all have to do with context. The first is, all communication has historical context. Okay, This isn't just talking about biblical communication. This is all communication has historical context. Secondly, all communication has literal context. So historical, literal, and then thirdly, grammatical. All communication has a grammatical context. Now, that may seem kind of vague at this point or, or unclear to you, but don't be scared by those words. We'll talk about what each one means uh, as we go through. Today, we're going to spend our time at looking at the historical context. How do we understand the Bible um, or anybody's speech, really, according to a historical context? Well, every book of the Bible was written at a particular time, place, in a given culture, and for and with a specific purpose. So if we want to understand God's message for us, we have to understand a, pa- a passage according to its, its historical context. So let's first look, by, look at uh, that, that area of time. Okay, We talked about this already. God did not produce the Bible all at once. Remember, it was composed over 1,600 years or so, and the last one was done in 1,900 years. And so, 1900 years ago. And so, in order to understand the author's intended meaning, we have to go back to that time period. And that's why, that's why when you hear preaching where, uh, you know, they talk about what the customs were at that time. What was going on during that time? Who, who were the rulers of that region? And so on. Those things are important. Um, you recognize that, that even words change over time. Okay, we'll talk about this, I think, when we get to a grammatical context, but but just as as an example, can you think of any words that have changed meaning since the time you were young? Can you think of any? Dog. Dog? Okay, yeah, you can say, uh, you can use dog as like a good, 
like like friend. Yeah, dog. How you doing, dog? Um, can you think of anything else? Bad. Yeah, that was so bad. Or even fat. They have a different spelling for fat that's supposed to be cool, I guess. When I was a kid, I used to watch the Flintstones. And the Flintstones had a, a song on there that, and it and it finished with that they'll have a gay old time. Now, now that word's changed a lot, hasn't it? And and so you recognize that that uh, meanings change over time, and uh, so we need to understand what the author was intending. We can't take a, a word in scripture and force our culture or all, our timing on what that word means when that's not when what Paul meant or that's not what Moses meant or so on. So it's it's a very um, important. Uh, discipline that we all need to take. Okay, this is not something that we just say. Well, we'll just give this to the scholars. Okay, let the scholars deal with that. No, this is like I said. Every one of us do interpretation when we open the Bible and read it for ourselves. So we need to do it for. We need to understand how to do it ourselves because uh, the scholars and the spiritual leaders are not always going to be there for you. So here's the way that we understand the timing. Uh, one of the ways that we understand the timing of something, okay, or understand what what that those words mean in time. Use the context. Okay, use the context to help you determine what the author is referring to. And if you're unclear as to what exactly was going on during that time, then consult a good study Bible or a, a, a commentary. And I'd be happy to point you to some if you ever. Uh, are interested in that. All right. Next, we need to talk about place. Think about how important a geographical location is to your understanding of a given event. Okay. If I said that a plane crashed in downtown New York, okay, you could think of all the implications of that. Now, if I said that that a plane crashed in Jeffrey City, Wyoming, I mean you would think of two completely different things. You could think, wow, masses of people over here in New York, Wyoming, a field. I mean, I don't know what's out there. Um, and so you see how, see how different it is just by thinking of those two different geographical locations. The same thing is true with regard to the Scriptures. Um, most Christians live thousands of miles away from where the Bible events took place. And... And, and so we should become familiar with the relationships between ancient sites and current boundaries and so on. And so it's valuable to learn the terrain of the Bible lands. You know, when, when Jesus went up from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives to realize that he had to go down in the Kidron Valley and then back up into the Mount of Olives. And, and you have maps in your Bible to help you that way. Okay, usually in the back of your, your Bible you have maps. Or... Um, there's all sorts of resources that you can get online for that that sort of thing. Um, a good Bible atlas is always uh, helpful in this regard. But the place is also important in order to understand the historical context. And then thirdly, culture. Modern day thought and behavior are different from that of Bible times. There are cultural difference between differences between groups of people um, mentioned in the Scriptures. For example... The Roman culture of Paul's day was totally different from the Hebrew culture of Moses' day. Okay, so you even have different cultures even within the Bible, and then both of those are even different from us. So, 
we have to try to understand these cultures. Um, and uh, so it's important to understand the culture behind any given text. And that's why usually when, when, uh, whenever I preach through a book, I usually start at the beginning with some, some what we would probably call boring material. What was the time? When was this written? Okay, who was writing it? What was his job? That sort of thing. But those are all important to understanding the point of what God is trying to, to, to tell us. Alright? Any questions on, on any of these things with regard to historical context? Does this all make sense? Okay. Now, purpose is, is one of the most important of these, perhaps the most important, because from the beginning I've said that, that authors have one intended meaning. Okay, All language has one intended meaning. Now, there are some exceptions when you have double entendres or even irony, uh, those sorts of things. But, but even then, in irony, you're meaning the opposite of what you say, so there still is one intended meaning. So we can't say, well, this meant them for this meant this for them, but it means this for us. There's only one meaning. Okay, so that's what we need to understand. What is the purpose of each uh, passage? Now, each of, each book of the Bible has a specific intention, and we need to interpret it in light of its intention or purpose. Um, because we can gain insight from the Bible just by reading it, but if we miss the author's purpose, then we really haven't come to understand it at all. We're much like those cops who uh, wrongly assumed that we were involved in a murder because of a, a note we wrote to our sweetheart. Okay, And so, what we do understand is that God speaks and that the biblical writers were speaking on behalf of God because they were inspired because God's word is inspired and therefore the purpose for writing is God's purpose so what we're trying to determine is not just okay this is a nice little article here we're trying to find the purpose we're trying to find out what God is is doing here why is he doing this all right let's let's look at a couple examples John chapter 20 in your bibles John chapter 20 And sometimes the authors explicitly tell you what their purpose is in writing. Like John here in chapter 20. Will someone read verses 30 and 31? John 20, 30 and 31. Trish? All right. So, using John's exact words, what would what would John's purpose in writing be? Okay. Look at verse thirty-one. These have been written. This book he's talking about. This book that I've written is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you may have life in His name. So, John's purpose is to show you that Jesus is the Christ, and that you would believe and that you would have life in Him. So we have an explicit purpose. All right, now look, let's look back to Luke chapter 1. See another example. Luke chapter 1, one, one book back in your Bible. 
right before John. Luke chapter 1. Will someone read verses 1 through 4? Jared? Alright, what's the purpose there in Luke's words for for why he wrote this account? Okay, good. Verse four. So that those are those are key words there. That's that shows purpose. So that. Like you say, I I went to the store so that I could get bread. So what was your purpose in going to the store? Well it was get to get bread. This is what Luke is doing. Okay, I wrote all these things, I took a, a careful, investigated account so that you, the reader, may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Okay, so that there's another example of an explicit, an explicit way in which the author gives his purpose. Again, First John chapter five, towards the back of your Bible. First John chapter five. And would someone read verse 13? Ken? These things uh, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Alright, so what is the purpose in John writing this epistle? It's the same John that wrote the Gospel. What's his purpose? Right, so that you, the reader, may know that you have eternal life. Okay, so there's three examples of where authors tell their specific purpose for writing uh, their book. Now, sometimes the authors don't do that. Okay, We don't have that in every single book of the Bible. And so we have to examine the text for clues. We have to try to understand why it has been written and what are the main themes. Um, And so when we're dealing with, for example, a New Testament epistle, like First John or Old Testament prophet, and it doesn't have an explicitly stated meaning or, or purpose, I should say, then ask questions like this. All right, who, who's writing to whom? So who's the author? Who's the recipient? This will help us determine what that purpose is. And then what is the situation? Okay, so First Corinthians. Why did Paul write to the church at Corinth? Why did he do that? And then we can ask questions like this. Are there any problems or issues explicitly identified? So, in the case of 1 Corinthians, we see that, that Paul was, was um, concerned about people committing immorality within the local church. And one person who was being treated like a believer when he was acting like an unbeliever. Alright, so what is the situation? What, what kind of problems are going on? Um, are there repeated, repeated themes? Um, so, so those types of questions help lead us to one specific purpose. And, and we can figure it out that way. Um, God's given us the wisdom and understanding to be able to do so. Uh, some are more difficult than others, but they are discernible. Um, 
when dealing with narratives, okay, narratives like the stories, you have um, the Gospels are all narratives. You have much of the Old Testament written in narrative form. Um, when dealing with narratives, consider what the author chooses to put in and chooses to leave out. Okay, so for the Gospel of Mark, notice what kind of stories he leaves in there. Like we're studying on Sunday morning, what kind of stories he leaves in there and which ones he takes out. Okay, that not as important to his point, his purpose, what he's trying to do. So, um, for example, the, when David sinned with Bathsheba, the author of First and Second Chronicles does not include that sin because he's trying to show uh, he, he's trying to celebrate the best of Israel and Judah and, and their history, and he's given an account that way and. And yet, Second Samuel keeps this story in because it has a different purpose. It's trying to show that even King David is a sinner. Even the best of the best are are marred by sin. We all have sin, and so um, we need a savior. Other other uh, books may prove a little bit more difficult, uh, like Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, but the same principle applies. Search for dominant themes. Uh, search for hints, clues towards what the author is trying to convey. And um, and indeed, that statement is true, and I'll repeat that again. That, that is that we should read the Bible more like a novel and less like a spiritual encyclopedia. Each verse, each chapter, each book is connected. They form one large book that, that, that gives to us God's uh, story, God's purpose, and uh, we can't just take verses out of context and use them however we please. Turn over to Joel chapter 3. Joel's in the Old Testament um, towards the end. We studied this on Sunday night not too long ago. And I want to give you another example of how people just take verses out of context and just use them however they, they want to use them. They And what I mean by that is they... They take a meaning that God did not have for those words and they force their meaning on top of, of those words. Okay, here's an example. Joel chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Okay, does anyone, has anyone ever heard that phrase before? If you've been at revival services or heard um, evangelists speak, you'll occasionally hear, hear this during invitation time. He'll look out in the crowd and he'll say, multitudes, multitudes are in the valley of decision. Hey, that kind of thing happens all the time. But, but notice the context. Look at, look at the end of the verse. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. When we studied through this, what we understood was the valley of decision is the valley of Jehoshaphat, where all of of the people who have opposed God, okay, at the end of the tribulation, will be brought into this valley of Jehoshaphat, and and we see in verse thirteen what's going to happen to them. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. This will be a time of great destruction. And so what God is saying here is multitudes, multitudes are in the valley of judgment. That's what it means. They're being judged for their sin. And they're going to be completely wiped out because of their sin and they're going to have to spend an eternity 
in hell following that. And so when when a person takes a verse like that and tries to use it to say that, that it means whatever he wants it to say, they're taking what God had intended and they're twisting it. Okay, And it, it seems kind of harmless, but but as I said before, God only has one meaning for Scripture and that's why we have to be very careful about how we use it. Mark? Just a quick question. This is referring to a future event. Yep. Right. Nope. That's just speaking of a of a literal event that will take place in that valley at the end of the tribulation. I think it's talked about in Revelation 19, where they say the blood's going to flow up to the the horse's bridle. A multitudes are referring to a finite number of people who will be left on that earth at that time. Okay. And then after that there's going to be a judgment at the great white throne at the end of the um at the end of the 10 uh the 1000 years the millennial reign of Jesus Christ right a decision has already been made by God it's not right Right, it's it's almost an uh, um, an ironic way to say about you know they they thought that they could gather up their armies and and fight against God and God's like no the decision's already been made you're going to be in the valley I'm going to win because I'm God and so you don't have a choice so so when an evangelist uses that sort of thing it's not even talking about people making the decision it's talking about God has already made the decision with regard to how these people in the future are going to receive His judgment okay. Good question. I no, my Bible says God decision means God heard it. So he's already God's decision like Yeah, God's judgment or God's verdict has already come down. So so I was just trying to give you an example of of how how often the scriptures are used and we could probably think of examples in our own lives of how we've taken a verse um and used it to even comfort us. We say, well, that's a good thing, right? We're tr- we're using it to comfort us, and yet that was never what God had intended. Bob, how about the one that even unbelievers use? Don't judge me. The Bible says, no, don't judge me. Right. Yeah, they don't understand that the the uh, Paul talks about even within the church that we should be judging those inside the church um, to make sure that that we are all um, eliminating sin and and uh, and walking closely with God. The one I think about, uh, one of the most common errors is to use Old Testament uh, truths and apply them to ourselves be, as if God were talking to us and not Israel. Um, for example, Jeremiah chapter, I think it's 31, he, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and uh, not to harm you and so on. And, and that's, those are promises, yes, but those promises for Israel. So we need to understand things in their context. Did God promise those to us, the church? Or did he, is He promising those to Israel? And, uh, and like I said, uh, these come, what, what it comes down to is by what rules will you play by when you're reading the Scriptures? And I say good people disagree, and that's because you have, I have 
I, I know lots of good people who are Orthodox people who believe that, that Israel's promises are for us. Like, we are the new Israel. Um, but if you, if you follow these rules that, that are being laid down, which is normal um, rules of interpretation for all language, then you will come to the same conclusion that, that I've come to, and that is um, that, that, that there is only one meaning for those words and we have to understand them in their context. All right. Um, so when we're looking at a passage, what we need to understand is that we need to look at it in light of its context. Okay. So we look at something small. It's always good to look at what's around there. What else is being said? And, and it's good to go out as far as you can. Okay. So you have a verse to maybe a paragraph to a chapter to a book to the Bible as a whole. It's good to see see it in light of those things. Bob? Um, when you're saying knowing the rules, wouldn't you also say that uh, looking at Scripture from a dispensational point of view is a set of rules that we take that others don't take? Right. That's, that's one of the foundations. And if you don't understand the difference in the dispensations, then you're starting off on the right. foot anyway. Right. And that's basically the, the, the difference that um, we don't have time to go into that. We will when we get to um, systematic theology, which is coming up probably a year or so from now. But um, there is a, a normal way to understand the Scriptures, and that is that, that God was dealing with people in different ways at different times. So, uh, for example, Adam didn't have Jesus Christ to lean on because Jesus Christ hadn't come to the earth yet. He didn't die on the cross. Um, uh, Moses um, didn't have, uh, you know, whatever. Moses didn't have the same sorts of things that we have. He didn't go to a local church. Um, He didn't go to, to see God in that way. So, we need to understand it in terms of the era or the way in which God has has dealt with those people in the past, and what happens the the main other view is not not that view where you look at it in eras or ways in which God deals, but they just look at it like it's all bound up in one, like God was dealing with people the same way all time for all time, and so all the promises in the Old Testament are promises for us but if you get the, if you go too far, what's going to happen you go too far down that way, what's going to happen is now you're going to have to obey rules like don't boil uh what is it don't boil goat or a kid in its mother's milk or uh you have to have a parapet around your the top of your roof you have to um you can't eat meat you can't mi- you can't eat the uh pork or whatever you can't mix claws and all sorts of things so what people do is they pick and choose which ones they want to accept as commands and promises and they push away all the other ones but um, if you're going to go down that way, then you need to wholesale accept the whole thing, which a person can't uh, obviously do. All right, turn over to John chapter 3. And what I want to do is try to look at John 3 in light of its context. John 3.16. So, we could do it like arcs, like this. Bible. Okay, then we'll put John over here. 
and then we could put, um, let's say, chapter 3 right here. And then we could even do the surrounding paragraph right here, and then verse 16 here. Okay, so we're going to start right here, John 3.16. We want to understand this in light of its paragraph, okay, the paragraph that it, it, in which it's contained. And then we want to understand the paragraph in light of the whole chapter, what John's trying to say in this whole chapter, or we could say section. And then what does that mean in light of the book? And what does the book mean in light of this? And that will help us better understand this, the verse. Okay, that, that may seem a little confusing, but let's, let's look at that. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. All right, now let's look at the whole paragraph. Starting in verse 17, we'll see what, what this means in light of what, what John is saying in the whole paragraph. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So we could summarize this paragraph by saying that God has acted and Jesus is the one who saves sinners and exposes the sin of the lost. That's why he says in verse 17, he did not, the Son did not come to, to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. So God has acted. Now, if we looked at uh, John chapter 3, we would see that Jesus is teaching Nicodemus that men must be born again and that he must accept Jesus as his Savior, that he must be born of the water and uh, uh, of the Spirit and the water. And so John records um, John the Baptist confirming what Jesus says about himself. Whoever believes in the Son, verse 36 of John chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. So what we find is that this verse 16 is part of a bigger section that shows that Jesus is the way to get to God. Jesus is the only way. And then if we looked at the whole book of John, what, what did we say the purpose was of the book of John? Remember? John twenty thirty one. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So, you, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ fits... So, this fits into that theme. That God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So John's saying this verse here is part of this bigger theme which is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you would have life in His name. Now we could expand it out to the whole Bible and the message of the Gospel that the Old Testament points to this Jesus. It, it points forward to this Jesus who is coming. It looks for a better day. And we could say that, that God is working to redeem His people. The people who have once strayed from Him 
are are now being redeemed. And so in many ways, this this John 3.16 is one of the central verse, if not the central verse in the entire Bible. Because it shows that, that God is bringing us to to a right relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. So you see how that works. Um, all, all individual truths fit under each of their larger umbrellas of truth. And so, uh, you know, as we take all these little truths, it makes up this larger truth, which is that God is redeeming His people to have a relationship with them. So the point that we should learn today is that we ought to interpret every biblical text text in light of its purpose. And the most important truth that I can give for you, and this is the first foundational truth of interpretation, it is a text can never mean what it never meant. Okay, I've said that in different ways today, but I just want to make that clear. A text can never mean what it never meant. Okay, I've said that by saying, okay, the author has one intended meaning. Uh, there's, you, you can't just take whatever you want. Uh, you have to accept what the author has said. And so this is our first foundational truth to understand how to interpret the Scriptures. A text can never mean what it never meant. All right, any questions? All right, hopefully you're looking forward to next week uh, as Ken teaches uh, the class. Um, I'm certainly looking forward to listening to the audio of it afterwards. Let me have a word of prayer and we will be dismissed. Lord, thank You for this time and we thank You for our understanding that comes through normal laws of language. And we thank You that You did not put a, a decoded or an uh, encoded message in the Scriptures, one that in which we would have to decode, but that it is clear language and we just have to do the work to understand it. And uh, although it seems daunting at times, we understand that we have Your Holy Spirit um, to help us to, to see Your Word as truth and to accept it as truth. And so we pray that You would help us to be uh, diligent, uh, that we would be workmen who are not ashamed and, and who are, are diligently uh, dividing the word of truth. And that's uh, something that is meant for each one of us. Help us not to be passive in this, but to be actively pursuing uh, listening to You through Your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.